Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. He's going to have to talk again in this episode about that time he asked Brooke Shields out on a date and she said no. He's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. With his fiery red hair and questionably smooth facial skin, he's constantly mistaken for the crazed comedian Carrot Top, but he's much, much funnier. <laughs> he's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Oh, well, yeah, kind of a dig and, and a compliment at once. I appreciate that. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about why some very similar-seeming airlines are taking very different approaches to restoring all the service they cut. Hmm. We'll talk about whether Zoom spells doom for the airline industry, plus a passenger whose physical strength we have to admire, even if she was indeed behaving very badly. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, I've seen a lot of analyses lately of July airline schedules. In fact, that's probably understating the case. More precisely, I've never in my life seen people as obsessed with airline schedules for the upcoming month as they are these days. But hey, you can't blame them, right? Because I mean, then again, when in our lives had we ever been so obsessed with TSA passenger throughput numbers at airports? And when I say we, I I mean we collectively, not me personally. I mean, I personally would never obsess over the fact that this past Sunday, U.S. airports set a new COVID-era record of, well, you know, approximately 544,046 people. More or less. But, but you know, other people care about this stuff. So we have the TSA figures looking backward at how many people actually traveled. And then we have the schedules looking forward. And it's interesting because this way we know what airlines are kind of expecting, how bullish they are, and, and so forth. So first, quickly, let me just read the numbers. All this according to Sirium schedule data. The way I'm going to do this is the percentage of domestic U.S. seats These airlines are planning as of now to fly this July compared to July of last year. Okay, so this is the percentage they have restored uh, based on what they're planning in July. Uh, First, let's take the big three global airlines. American, 59%. Again, this is domestic. 59%. Delta, 38%. United, 36%. Uh, so, so you see a big disparity there between American and then Delta and United, uh, less than 40% American, almost 60%. We'll get to the reasons why in a few minutes or the potential reasons why. Southwest, kind of a category of its own, sort of the fourth of the big major airlines, but not a global airline, a lot bigger than all the others, 67%. Okay, so that's the biggest number we've heard so far. Now, uh, you've got Alaska and JetBlue kind of 
similar in that they're both these coastally focused airlines, a lot smaller in those first four, but a lot bigger in the others. Alaska, 60% as of now, although I will say Alaska has been unusual in that it has continued canceling flights a little bit later than other airlines. So, uh, so, so you don't know, whereas the others, they've kind of stopped doing those last minute cancellations. Alaska has done a little bit more of that. So hard to say whether it'll actually fly. But anyway, 60% as of now, JetBlue, 42%, a disparity there. Then the big ultra low cost carriers, Spirit, 87%, Allegiant, 88%, Frontier, 65%, and Hawaiian kind of in its own category in that it doesn't really compete that much against the others except on the routes, obviously, between the West Coast and Hawaii. Hawaiian, 78%. Now, first, one kind of interesting quirk for the moment by this measure, again, as domestic seats scheduled in July, Frontier is actually a slightly bigger airline than JetBlue, which is usually a lot bigger than Frontier. Now, that won't likely last. JetBlue has a lot more airplanes and so forth, but just kind of something I had to look twice when I saw it, uh, like a lot of things these days for that matter. Anyway, though, Getting to the core of this, and then my question. Okay, so first of all, uh, keep in mind, those are all just domestic figures. Uh, The global airlines and even shorter haul airlines with a lot of international service like JetBlue and Spirit obviously have got bigger percentages of their overall networks because there are international routes. In some cases, they basically just can't fly right now, and and there's so little demand. But looking at the domestic figures, uh, I'm seeing some people including some smart people, kind of frame the differences in terms of different philosophies among the airlines. You know, in other words, the fact that American is flying so much more domestic compared to Delta and United, uh, that maybe American is is either just more bullish or maybe it just wants to grab more of a share right now of the pie, considering that Delta and United have cut so much more. And, and again, look, American is a smaller uh, global airline in terms of global service. American is a much more domestically focused airline. But these other analyses have sort of said, well, we're just talking domestic service and Americans flying a lot more and so forth. So, Ben, I'm not so sure of that. I want to ask you what you think of my theory. When I look at that disparity, and let's just take those three right now, I think you can't set aside the fact that American is a much more domestic airline overall, because I think that fact means that its domestic network doesn't support as much global flying. And so, of course, it doesn't have to cut as much domestic flying. Whereas if we think about United, for example, the airline that notably over the past few years had really built up its domestic service a lot more to better feed its international network. Well, then of course, United's domestic network would take a bigger hit because United is the most global of those three airlines in terms of the percentage of its revenue that usually comes from international operations or the percentage of its ASMs and and all of those things. Do you buy that? Again, just talking now about those three. Do you buy that, that it's not such a philosophical difference? It's just that that an American flight to use, I mean, there was an example in Airline Weekly uh, uh, this week, Fort Lauderdale, Charlotte on American probably has fewer international connecting, connecting passengers than Atlanta, uh, Fort Lauderdale on Delta, because like twice as much of Delta's capacity at Atlanta as a percentage of his overall operations flies abroad than American at Charlotte. Do you buy that? I totally buy that, Seth. I think that's right. I don't think this is a philosophy difference as much as just a practical economics reality. Guess what else is true? Guess where American's not that big anymore? 
in New York, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And, and Delta has built this huge, really, hub in LaGuardia and has built up big, big in LaGuardia and has a pretty big JFK presence. United has the Newark hub. And those two places have had to just cut back enormously because not a lot of people are going to and from New York. Yeah. And America's just not that big in New York. So I think that helps explain it as well. I think your idea, the fact that Americans' domestic flights are truly built more on domestic traffic and less on international feed is true. And number two, Americans' network is less exposed to the where the real hot spots in COVID activity has been. And the combination of those two, I think, has made them bigger. You know, there was an article last week about Philadelphia being bigger than Newark, right? Yeah. Now, just like Frontier being a little bigger than JetBlue. Right yeah. Now, right? That obviously, that's not going to be true for the long term. But right now it is because, again, Philadelphia has got a lot of, lot of domestic traffic. Um, you know, it's funny. When I worked at U.S. Airways and we had the hub at Philly, one thing that I had never thought about before going to work for U.S. Airways was the fact that one of the challenges with Philadelphia as a hub is that neither Washington nor New York are important cities to fly to because the train dominates that service. Yeah. And every other hub in the U.S., New York and Washington, are both really important for how the hub is structured and how many flights you have. And things so like you that. either have to subsidize it with short haul flights that, that just absolutely have no local demand that you're only running them to feed your global network, or you don't have that feed at Philly, right? In other words, a, a flight from, I think at times they've had flights from like Baltimore to Philly. I don't think that exists anymore, but a flight from, from uh, Washington to Philly, which those still exist. I mean, those only exist, uh, to feed the long haul network. No, I, I think that's right. And, and so, so what that has done is that makes Philadelphia as a hub for American, just much more of a domestic focused hub. Now they fly international long haul stuff out of Philly, but sure. not nearly what's flown out of New York, out of JFK and Newark. I mean, you know, there's city codes flown out of Newark and Kennedy that people at American don't even know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and 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 that's a great point. And the disparity, uh, you know, JetBlue versus Alaska. You mentioned New York. I mean, there too, JetBlue's biggest focus is New York, whereas Seattle, things were bad there early on. But Seattle kind of got its uh, Pacific Northwest in general kind of got its hands around things uh, a, a little bit more. So maybe no surprise there. Allegiant, we talked about it a few weeks ago, was the first airline to really build things back up to be flying uh, the majority of its schedule, even when almost no, when no, I shouldn't say almost when nobody else was doing that. No surprise, Allegiant, uh, not only a hundred percent domestic airline, but much more focused on the heartland. Southwest, mostly a domestic airline, disproportionately focused on the heartland. New York's not too important to Southwest. The middle of the country is important to Southwest. I'll give you one more stat, Ben. Just total apples to apples. What would you? Let me ask you this. To see if you're thinking like I am. If you had to think of like a, a directly competitive hub in America, just two airlines going at it, and you kind of think of them as both doing the same thing at this one hub, what, what would you pick? Charlotte, Atlanta, maybe? No, no, no. One, one hub, one, oh, one airport, one clearly, airport. Clearly two, Chicago, American United. Then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So just one place where two airlines, you think of them as just, just at each other's throats doing the same thing. Yep. 
But even at O'Hare, I went into the uh, the schedules, the Sirium schedules for 2019, because you know, forget this year, everything is weird. But in terms of just what they usually do there, and I, th- I think there was a bigger planned disparity this year because American cut its China service, I believe, in the middle of, of 2019. But even if you look at just all of 2019, so you're not worrying about seasonality or anything of that, Americans' ASMs, available seat miles, just its capacity out of Chicago, just less than 20% is international. Okay, and that's international of any kind, including Canada or you know, or, or long haul Europe, Asia, just under twenty percent. United is thirty two percent. Okay, so if you think about even domestic flight, just even a flight from Dallas to Chicago, or from you know, just pick your smaller city to to you know, Memphis to Chicago, a much bigger percentage probably of people on the plane in usual times on United are connecting abroad than is the case on American, and that can be a good thing for United when there's lots of global travel. But right now. Yeah, just very different. So I'm not sure it's a philosophical difference. And when I look at all of these numbers, to me, I I just think they're almost, when you think about it, almost what you would expect. Well, Ben. Well, Seth, Seth, before we go off this too, I think we should talk about the three highest because there's a reason for that too, I think. If you look at Allegiant at 88 and Hawaiian at 78, what's unique about those two airlines is they serve geographies in that are unique to yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, Hawaii I remember this is this Hawaii is by seats coming in. Yeah. Yes, by seats. But by Hawaii, seats. So Hawaiian. No, no, no. I'm, uh, yeah, and that's what I'm agreeing with you because Hawaiian yeah. people think of Hawaiian as uh, uh, at least people on the in the mainland. I think think of Hawaiian flights between you know mostly the West Coast and 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 Hawaii. But in terms of seats, I mean, Hawaiian's bread and butter are those inter island flights. That's you right. Know, and, and and so and, and but the islands need the air service just like the little cities that Allegiant serves yeah. needs the air service too. And in Spirit's case, with the eighty-seven percent, they just have the lowest cost. Yeah, and so they actually reach an economic hurdle where they can generate cash earlier than the other airlines because their cost is low. So they're going to add back the capacity more quickly. So I think there's good economic reasons that we've discussed here yeah. that, that you don't have to believe it's a philosophical thing. These are all smart businesses making smart decisions to manage their business in a real tough time. And like you said, I think this all makes sense when you think of it that way. Yeah. And the ultra low cost carriers also benefit from what's called the trading down effect. So in the same way that Walmart tends to do relatively well in downturns, because, you know, you have some people who can't even afford to shop at Walmart anymore or can't even afford to fly Spirit anymore. But those people tend to be replaced by people who used to shop somewhere more luxurious or used to fly uh, maybe a more luxurious airline and, and then find themselves flying Spirit or, or shopping at Walmart. So there's there's that too. Uh, ben, we've been getting so many good listener questions. I want to get through as many of them as possible. And in fact, a lot of them dovetail with topics we would want to discuss anyway. We'll talk about the 737 Max in a little while. But first, let's step away briefly from the doom and gloom for a minute. Joe from the University of South Florida, that's how he identifies himself, writes, Hi, Ben and Seth. I hate the show. I was reading a 2006 New York Times article about Richard Branson's idea of having aircraft towed to the runway to save fuel versus aircraft taxiing on engines during long air traffic control delays. Uh, Does it make too much sense? By the way, love the show. He was just kidding. (laughs) Joe. Now, first of all, Ben, you and I know this. You have to 
actually suspend disbelief when it comes to Florida geography to figure out where the University of South Florida is. University of South Florida is actually in Tampa, Tampa, which is not what most people consider South Florida. South Florida is uh, generally, well, when you say South Florida, okay, on the map, it might mean Southwest and Southeast Florida, but Southwest Florida, like Fort Myers, they call themselves Southwest Florida. Usually what, what you call South just South Florida is Southeast Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, maybe West Palm Beach, all that. But the University of South Florida is in Tampa, which by any any definition other than what the university is called, you would call you know West Florida or the Bay Area or something like that. Anyway, little Florida trivia from two people who uh, who, who lived there a long time. In my case, a Florida native. So yeah, this is something that you know might have been prescient back in in 2006. Now there are various forms of this. Joe's saying you know towing the airport to the gate. There's all kinds of technology out there, uh, and there's there are low tech ways of doing this. Just taxiing on one engine, for example, uh, and then starting the second engine shortly before takeoff. So, what about that, Ben? What 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 has changed since 2006 in terms of the way airlines do this to avoid wasting fuel? Well, it's a really good question. I think it also just shows. How desperate do people get when they're cloistered at home to read 2006 articles <laughs> about an industry that changes every quarter? <laughs> no, but thank you, Joe. Be nice to Joe. Come on. <laughs> he's, he's, no, I, I love yeah, We don't have any listeners. We can't, we can't start out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, no, but that said, the, the industry has just done a lot. Obviously, the biggest single thing is what I would call single engine taxi, right? And so, Single engine taxi means most airplanes have two engines, right? But pilots routinely now taxi the plane with one engine. And the good thing about that is it saves a lot of fuel, but it gives them a lot more control. It also doesn't require an employee to be there tugging it or a piece of equipment tugging it, right. which are other two sort of big issues as well. I think airlines have they, they have a balance. There's a cost to getting the plane out there. But there's also flexibility, timing in busy airports. You have to be able to react quickly when they say turn left instead of right or use this taxiway instead of that taxiway. And when the pilot's in control of the plane versus being towed, it's just much easier to make that happen. When they do it with one engine and the engines are a lot more efficient than they used to be back in 2006, um, I think it's the airlines have said that the net of all that is better than having our planes towed. Airplanes are still towed at airports, but you Usually when they're taken from a gate, maybe out to a, um, a more remote part of the ramp to have some maintenance done on them or to park for a while or something like that. And, and there are some hybrid technologies that uh, that are out there in terms of something where it's not literally a, a person towing, but uh, but you, Joe says it's on his, in his uh, subject line, it's a taxi bot. There are a few different forms of this uh, where e- either promoted by certain manufacturers, uh that are linked to the airframe manufacturers or just independent ones uh, where some kind of electric power that resides within, you know, the front wheel of the airplane maybe is, is, uh, is doing some of the work. Uh, Am I right about that? Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And so in 2006, that was an interesting thing. Richard Branson never actually ran an airline in the U S (laughs) right. I mean, even though there was Virgin America and he was involved, he, um, but so, yeah, I think that uh, maybe that made sense in that time. Yeah. To think about I, that as a possibility, but it's just much smarter now. 
and and different airlines come to different conclusions about the the same questions. I remember once teaching a, an airline economics course, and and people at one airline told me uh, the, the airline outside the U.S. told me that their airline does not do single engine taxiing because their math, you know, this is just what they had found. So they tried doing it, and they found that you know when you when you start the engine right before you take off. Uh, uh, obviously, you know when you start an engine, there's always the, the chance of of learning about some kind of mechanical dile- uh, some kind of mechanical issue, and they found that they ha- were spending too much time learning about issues too late, right? And then they would they would have to taxi back to the gate, and uh, and and that the, their math told them no, it was better basically to waste the fuel, start both engines early, and learn about the problem. Uh, just as you're pushing back from the gate instead of later. Now maybe they have an older fleet, you know. So so there are other things that that could, or maybe the maintenance is, you know, just uh, the, the to, to be charitable, you know, me, me to me to a, a different standard. Well, my impression was it was a perfectly safe airline, uh, and, and and they had just done the math and come to that conclusion. So and that happens all the time, right? Different airlines come to very different conclusions uh, based on on similar data. Well. John from Ames, Iowa writes, I'm a communications professional, uh, recently discovered your show, really enjoy it, uh, a near lifelong lover of commercial aviation in the airline business. Question, virtual meetings have become a way of life for many professionals since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Uh, Many companies that used to fly employees to locations for meetings have had to adjust meetings online and are discovering how easy and cheap they are compared to to -to face-to-face meetings. How much more damage do you think this will do to the long-term health of airlines that rely heavily on business travelers if many businesses decide to stick with virtual meetings even after travel returns to normal? And he put normal in quotes. Uh, Thank you. Well, great question, John. Now, Ben, uh, John's not the only person who's who's raised this this, uh, this idea. I, I want to first play the audio from a 1989 United Airlines commercial. It starts with a man who seems to be the head of a company walking into a room where employees have gathered. And the part in the middle, when you hear the music and the announcer, the boss starts handing out a pile of airline tickets, obviously paper airline tickets back in 1989. That's the only part of the commercial you might not guess from hearing just the audio. The rest is pretty easy to follow. First, grab a tissue. And it starts with the boss saying, I got a phone call this morning from one of our oldest customers. He fired us. After 20 years, he fired us. Said he didn't know us anymore. I think I know why. We used to do business with a handshake, face to face. Now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. Well, folks. Something's got to change. That's why we're going to set out for a little face-to-face chat with every customer we have. But Ben, that's got to be over 200 cities. I don't care. Thanks. If you're the kind of business that still believes personal service deserves no. a lot more than lip service, welcome to United. That's the way we've been doing business for over 60 years. Ben, where are you going? To visit that old friend who fired us this morning. United. I'm flying the friendly skies. So, Ben, in 1989, United Airlines was worried about whether fax machines would uh, be the end of global airline travel. 
I mean, I'm maybe overstating the case a little bit, but there you heard it, phones, faxes, and, and you could go back decades earlier, and there were people who would have said the telephone would do it and other kinds of technology like that. And, and, and by the way, even more recently with this whole idea of video conferencing, obviously now it's, it, it's completely taking off to use perhaps a, a poor pun, but uh, coming out of the Great Recession, I think it was about 2009, 2010. I don't know if you remember this, but British Airways had a campaign. They called it Face to Face, and they had a contest. If you submitted, I don't know, information about your business, there was a drawing. They were giving away uh, free airline tickets around the world to go meet your customers and your prospects face to face. And and that was very clearly in response to during the Great Recession, people were using earlier forms of of this video conferencing and people were Skyping already. It existed then. It wasn't as developed. But so over the years, time and again, there have been these predictions that this technology or that technology was going to be end of global airline travel. And it hasn't turned out that way because it correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the way to think about it is that these technologies have indeed replaced certain purposes of travel, but the technologies have also made the world smaller in ways that stimulated new purposes of travel that, that nobody ever imagined, right? So, so, so the same thing that made it that you didn't have to fly to Chicago just to get somebody to sign a piece of paper also made it that everybody was just talking to each other so much more that you did go to Chicago for other reasons. And later you did go to Tokyo and then Beijing and and and, and all the rest of it for other reasons. And so uh, so travel kept growing. Uh, is that a fair just just I'm just first yes or no. Is that a fair characterization? That's that's pretty much how it's happened, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And then the question is is does COVID change all that? Right, right and that's exactly it because hey, look, and it's a fair question because this is the biggest crisis of them all for the global airline industry, right? So so fair point that the biggest crisis of them all maybe has the biggest impact of them all. Ben, you say to John about that idea, what? Here's what I say to John. First of all, thank you for a very good question. I don't think it kills airlines. And I don't think meaning Zoom and video conferencing. But I do think that there is some traffic that used to fly in airlines that won't come back to airlines. There's a lot of reasons people fly for business. Um, And some of those reasons can be replaced by video conferencing effectively. And the important thing to think about here, Seth, is who pays for the ticket? If I'm paying for the ticket myself, I might think differently than if my company's buying my ticket for me. And the person in a company who buys the tickets for employees who travel for that company thinks about travel as an expense, not just as an opportunity. So it's not the individual employee necessarily that is going to decide, I don't want to travel because I can do it by video. But it's the person who would have bought their ticket that says, you can do this meeting by video and I'll buy you a ticket for this other meeting. And so it's not really in the traveler's hands for the business that would be lost for this. It's in the buyer's hands who are essentially procurement people at companies. Now, I've estimated, Seth, and I can't say that I've done all this sort of regression analysis and looked at tons of data, but my estimate sort of based on being in this business a while is that somewhere between 10 to 15% of travel that is called business travel and where the company pays for the travel, 
somewhere between 10 to 15% of that will be replaced long-term by video. Yeah. Because it's one thing to know that those technologies exist. It's another thing to get really comfortable using them. Yeah. And everybody's getting really comfortable using them. I mean, right now, Seth, as we talk, I'm looking at my iMac. And on the bottom of my screen, I see FaceTime, Skype, Blue Jeans, yep. WebEx, Microsoft Teams, GoToMeeting, Zoom, Google Meetup. All right. <laughs> right. right. They're all right. And so I'm comfortable using them too, right? And everybody's gotten comfortable. But there's a lot of business traffic that is can't be replaced, at least yet, by by video. I'm not gonna say won't ever be replaced by some kind of technology, but it's not gonna be replaced by video. You can't sell as well through Zoom. You can't audit a factory in a different city through Zoom as well. Right. You there's a lot of things you can't prospect business as well through Zoom. You just can't do as much. And there are businesses who are going to say, we've got to go out and see these people. We've got to go out and look at this facility. We've got to go out and prospect more business. And and travel on airplanes is going to be the way to do that. So a lot of business travel is going to come back, but some of it won't. And so then you ask the question, well, who's going to get hurt mostly from that? Well, I think it's going to be Southwest because Southwest carries a lot of business travel in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, you don't fly... 20 or 30 times a day between Dallas and Houston, just carrying leisure people. Yeah. Right. Right. And, right, and some of that traffic is going to go to Zoom. So maybe their 20, 30 flights end up being, you know, 18 to 22 flights or something yeah. like that. I'm not saying they don't fly there or that they're going to be low frequency there. Yeah. But if they take out maybe 20% of the frequencies forever in a route like that, they've got more routes like that than American United Delta do. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. And I get all these questions about, you know, which airlines are are hurt the most. And there's so many different ways to slice and dice it. Right. Because in some in certain ways, look, Southwest had one of the best balance sheets in the world. It has some of the best network exposure for now, as at least certainly, as we said before, uh, a nearly all domestic network, more heartland exposure. Now, look, there was a recent new hotspots, right, in, in Houston and places like that. Uh, but at least uh, up until recently, that was good. But you're right, in terms of corporate traffic, that's something probably a lot of people around the world don't realize. But Southwest is is, is absolutely a, a, a very corporate-focused airline. A lot of great thoughts there, Ben. Uh, you know, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, a flight on Lung Air, that's a Chinese airline, made an emergency landing after a very drunk woman punched through a window. As you might have guessed, this is the portion of the show we call Passengers Behaving Badly. The flight had taken off from a city called Shining. Ben, I know you would expect much more of the good people of Shining. <laughs> Just kidding. I I, I, I had never heard of Shining. <laughs> and I had to look on a map to find it. Uh, I, I'm sure the folks there are great and everything. But anyway, airplane windows, of course, have several layers. Uh, the woman who was identified only as Miss Lee, thankfully, didn't broke through the exterior glass. Uh, local reports said she had consumed half a liter of alcohol. So for perspective, picture sort of a standard bottle of whiskey. That's three quarters of a liter, right? 750 milliliters. So she drank like two thirds of that, which is enough to get several people drunk. Authorities said she, quote, lost control of her emotions after her boyfriend dumped her. You certainly, uh, th that last part is me summarizing. It was just lost control of her emotions was the quote, just in case you wondered why Chinese authorities were able to uh, use the American colloquialism. Now, you certainly have to feel bad for the woman. Ben, we disclosed previously on the show, true story, that you once asked Brooke Shields out on a date and she rejected you. 
Now, I never had the courage to ask Brooke Shields out on a date, which I'm certain is the only reason I never got to go out on a date with Brooke Shields. Well, that and the fact that I've never seen Brooke Shields in person can't be any other reason, right? But anyway, rejection, as Miss Lee teaches us, is hard. Did you for a moment consider drinking enough liquor to make an elephant drunk and then punching out an airplane window when that happened? Well, the answer to that is no, Seth. I actually thought the whole situation was quite funny. and In fact, it was my girlfriend at the time, wife now of over 33 years as of today, who actually pointed out to me that Brooke had walked into the library. You were with Marsha. And I needed to go in and ask her for a date. That shows what a wonderful woman I'm married to. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but, so, but this story, when I read this story – I just thought, wow, that that's amazing. I mean, you can be that mad. I mean, you think you'd want to punch him, right? Like, not the not the airplane, not the airplane. Well, so maybe she realized that would get her in trouble or something. But that's she must be a very very strong woman because that that would be very very hard. I think I would just break all the bones in my hand if I tried to punch a window. And and any future boyfriends should be sure to read the story, but before yeah. getting into the relationship, and then once they're in it, you know. Figure out a way to work it out with her, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quick update, Ben. The International Aviation Forecast Summit. Last week, we told you it looked like it was still on. And, and they've said officially uh, this this is on. And that's amazing because there aren't going to be a lot of opportunities for in-person events. I mean, look, of course, the caveat is you know, we all understand the world we're living in right now. And and, and, and plans could change, but, the, but it is on. Uh, they're busily figuring out you know how to get the social distancing right and all that to comply with everything uh do this safely but uh as as normally as possible and i am certainly looking forward to that i know you are too ben going to do the podcast from there that week it's it's august 23rd to 25th in cincinnati I wonder if they'll be playing baseball by then uh depending on what the uh what what the teams work out with the uh with the players uh, probably not well, maybe maybe not in front of people but maybe at least it'll like from far away we'll see a, a lit up ballpark if they're the reds are supposed to be in town that uh, then i don't know what the new schedule will look like but uh, anyway i'm very excited about that and one other thing I told you last week that the promo code that we had was uh was ending last friday I lied. No, I didn't lie. I mean, it was that was correct at the time. But now that now that this is like finally officially apparently happening, they've they've extended that. Uh, so you can hop on our website still, airlinesconfidential.com. You'll see the banner, uh, or or if you go straight to their site, if you just Google International Aviation Forecast Summit, it's it's AC fifteen fifty AC one five five zero again. Some, and that is the the price for for the first uh, attendee, a lot less than you'd usually pay this close to the event. But these are uh, not normal times. Uh, well, the seven thirty seven max. Remember when we thought that was the biggest crisis facing the global airline industry? We have an update on that next. Plus, a twist on fine or wine. Today, it's more like fine or divine. When airlines confidential returns. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. 
with Ben Baldanza. I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or whine is next. But first, let's go back to the mailbag. Dan in Chicago writes, hey, Ben and Seth, what are your thoughts about the 737 MAX grounding? I would guess the recertification process is probably delayed due to COVID-19. However, I get the feeling there are some other underlying issues that may have come up with the actual design in addition to the issues with MCAS that maybe haven't been made public. My favorite airline is Southwest. They have a huge order for the MAX. Any chance Boeing would have to do a serious redesign of the aircraft, which would require the already produced models to be sent back to Boeing for a rework before they can return to service? A lot of questions in there. Uh, So we'll try to unpack this a bit, Dan. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, First of all, Ben, there was a report last week that Spirit Aerosystems that's a huge company based in, in Wichita, Kansas, which manufactures airframes that Boeing had told them perhaps to slow down what they're doing, you know, which which would indicate that who knows what, right, uh, in terms of Boeing's expectations for, for production. There is also, just want to read this quickly, this is from Politico, less than two weeks after Senate uh, Commerce Chair Roger Wicker, he's Republican Senator from Mississippi, floated legislation on the Boeing 737 MAX that was slammed by safety advocates and family members of the victims of last year's crash. A new and newly bipartisan bill had has emerged that would make stronger changes to the FAA's delegation program. Ben, it's called that's officially the Organization Designation Authorization Program. That's the program that let Boeing, you know, controversially do some of its own uh, certification. Now, apparently, the FAA would have to sign off on the selection of employees who perform those delegated tasks. So the program would still exist. But the FAA with with more oversight there. And, and by the way, today, so Wednesday, as you're listening to this, if you're listening on the, the day this issue, the, this episode is coming out, uh, there is a Commerce Committee uh, hearing. Steve Dixon, uh, the, the head of the FAA, testifying. So big news, even alongside all the COVID stuff, as it relates to 737 MAX, all kinds of stuff. Obviously, we can't get to all the answers. We don't know all the answers, but Ben... Uh, to the best of your ability, uh, what what are we looking at here? What what what? With so much information. What really matters here in terms of the future of the Max? Well, Seth, and and um, thanks for the question too. Thank Seth. I said on a, a one of our earlier podcasts that there are sort of two separate issues related to the Max coming back into service. There's what I'll broadly call the engineering issue, which is fixing the reasons the plane crashed, fixing any issues with what we all now know as the MCAS software system, whether it's got the right number of inputs, whether the pilots are trained properly to use it, all of those things, right? That's what I call the engineering issues. Then separate from that, related, but separate from that, is the confidence building by regulators that they can certify this plane and not have another crash like Lion Air and Ethiopian. So I actually, my sense is that Boeing, which is a good engineering company, probably already has most of the engineering, if not all the engineering problems solved in the sense of what they have to do. It might mean more pilot training for the, for the pilots than they originally thought they might need. It might mean um, some additional sensors added to the plane. And I know that's not a trivial thing just to say that. It might mean a couple of those things. I don't think it means a complete redesign 
where everyone who has a Max would have to return it. Maybe they'd have to do some retrofit, and Boeing would probably pay for that in, in that case. And then there's the whole, when the FAA says this is a safe plane to fly, they need to be darn sure it is. And the rest of the world needs to. And so that's what's taking all the time is everybody recognized that the plane had issues, but what allowed the plane to fly with those issues was also a problem. And so as fixing that problem and the oversight around certification of airplanes is just a longer pole in the tent. And so at some point, the FAA is going to put their reputation on the line and say, we think this plane is safe to fly again. And from their point of view, that better be true. And how much do they need to see and know before they're willing to say that? And that's what's taking all the time. And that's the same for the European regulators and the Asian regulators and the rest of the world. So your guess right now, and I realize, you know, I mean, you you don't... you know, we're all just looking at information that's that's out there. But your guess right now is not that there's some other huge like physical design issue that we don't know about. You, you think it's mostly a matter of dotting I's and crossing T's and and, uh, and and just being very methodical, and not that there's just like something that we have no idea about going on. Well, I don't, I don't want to trivialize the issue. I mean, what, right. what the Max did. Oh, no, no, no. And I, and I don't mean to say that you're doing it, but no. I'm saying when, when Dan asks, yeah, was there just, just some other huge design issue? Obviously, we've focused on, you know, we know about MCAS, we know about about um, uh, everything else, just, just some other bigger thing with the airframe with the physical air your your guess just a guess is that it's not that yeah i don't think it is that by by saying i didn't mean to trivialize i meant that what they did to create the max was not a trivial thing right they they mounted a much larger engine than that plane had held before and they moved it more forward on the plane and even if you just took physics in college you understand what center of gravity is and things like that and you can realize yeah. it changed all that and MCAS was put there to for the pilot in the cockpit so that the plane would feel like the old NG. And that's not a trivial thing to do. And we all know now what some of the issues that happened with that. And so, but I don't think that their idea about putting the engine there or using software to mitigate some of the changes in aerodynamics that caused. I don't think those things are wrong. And so I don't think that it's a complete redesign. I think it's fixing the engineering, which Boeing knows how to do, and I guess as we're recording this, probably already is done, and then making the world be confident that their solution is correct, confident enough to say, I'll put my reputation on the line to say, I'll certify this plane. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Uh, again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines Confidential is all one word. Or you could jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, time for fine or whine. That's we listen to an actual customer complaint and we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining, except this week we don't have a complaint. Or more precisely, I mean, we have lots of complaints. We'll get to more of them next week from all the usual filings. But a loyal listener, Yoni, 
wrote in with something different. Yoni says he's in Chicago for the summer. If my memory serves me correctly, he's usually in Bloomington, Indiana, which I think per capita has more airlines confidential fans than any place else on the planet, right? Because we had another question from Bloomington, Indiana a couple weeks ago. And for that matter, I guess Chicago is popular, right? Because we had these are two Chicago questions in a row. I mean, not not as much per capita because the denominator is bigger in Chicago. Right? But anyway, thank you to everybody in Bloomington and Chicago and everywhere else in the world who likes that. Back to Yoni. Ben, what does Yoni write? Yoni, Seth, writes, last week I had two great calls with Delta and Alaska about changing my reservations to Seattle for the 4th of July. The Delta agent was great and changed the date of my tickets without charging a difference in fare or a change fee. I don't have any status. She also points out that they did this not because she had yeah, 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 yeah. right. And when I voiced my concerns about basic economy to the Alaska agent, he even told me the load factor was only 27% and that it's unlikely I'll get a middle seat. Ben, would you approve of a reservation agent sharing the load factor so a customer could buy basic economy with the confidence they won't get a middle seat? And then I saw Yoni also snuck in another question there, right? I guess trying to get a buy one, get one free. He also in this message says, quote, who do you think is going to buy Delta's triple sevens? Richard Anderson's $10 million used triple seven comment has to hurt now. Uh, thank you for all you do and keep up the good work. Okay, so we'll get back to that. But that's sneaky, Yoni. Um, but yeah, so 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 night. I mean, nice experiences, and and right now it's it's just any kind of good news. We're happy to hear it, and and you know you do hear about uh, some of the unfortunate stuff, but their airlines are showing unprecedented flexibility, and and I've heard also from other people who have had surprisingly good experiences at times with them. So it's great to hear about um, both Delta and Alaska treating. Yoni that way. Uh, what about his question, Ben? Uh, would you approve of the res- reservation? I've had this before and I always appre- I-, I like information. I don't go and do anything nefarious with it. Like I just like when an agent's honest with me and y- you know that- that's just going to make me personally more uh, likely to do business with that airline. But what-, what do you think about that, Ben, about the agent saying, hey, this flight's, this flight's empty? Well, in general terms, I don't think that's good practice to share that kind of information or to say that. I think the agent could have said something like, not a lot of people are traveling right now. This flight isn't very booked. Your chances of getting a middle seat are pretty small. He could have said something like that. Yeah. But that said, I'm not going to pick on this agent at all. Right. Not that many people are traveling right now and airlines are doing everything they can to make people comfortable to just click buy. And if that agent thought that, he could better make the sale by telling her a real fact. He wasn't lying, saying the plane's empty when it's full, right? But giving her data that would help her actually make the sale. I think that agent was probably just helping his company. And while I wouldn't normally think that's the right thing to do, we're not in normal times either. So I don't really have a problem with it. What do you think, Seth? You think he messed yeah, up? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. I just appreciate when somebody's human you know with me and and uh when you feel like you know you're like yeah obviously they they are loyal to their employer but they also understand the the customer's predicament and, and like i say i know i personally 
will never take advantage of their goodwill and then go do something that would hurt them or their company. For me, I'm, I'm just going to be appreciative of that and, and keep it in mind. It's going to make me more likely to do business with that company. So quickly, another question from Yoni, who's going to buy Delta's 777s? Uh, Delta, for those who don't know, it's it's retiring suddenly. I think it's like nearly 20 777s that it had. Doing that because that's the smallest of its, of its wide-body fleets. And then Yoni said Richard Anderson's $10 million used 777 comment got her now. Anderson was, was kind of talking down the, or seemed to be talking down the price of airplanes a few years ago, saying that this is, this is how, how cheap they are. <laughs> so, so here, Delta now has a whole bunch of, of, of all things, not just any airplane, but 777s that Richard Anderson was trying to make it sound like nobody wanted. But, well, there's but, not uh, a lot of airlines buying any airplanes right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so a $10 million used 777 might be appealing to some, but I don't know how to answer Yoni for that one. I don't know who's going to buy those planes. <laughs> They'll get sold at some point. They might get parted out at some yeah. point. They yeah. might get converted to freighters at some point. I yeah. don't know that that's even a program for the 777 yet, but somebody might create it, right? right. There's there's going to be life in some way for these airplanes. And some of them are going to fly under other colors somewhere in the world. But it's just way too early to figure out what's going to do. I mean, you know, you have Delta getting rid of its 717 fleet, its MD-80s, its, uh, its 777s, Air France getting rid of its 380s, right? There's airlines just jettisoning full fleets, Think about what that's doing to the world supply of airplanes. Think about what that's doing to the manufacturers of new airplanes and what they have to compete with for the next couple of years. It's absolutely crazy. And so trying to predict what's going to happen with all this is just impossible. But Delta bought those planes new. They maintained them well. So my guess is there's still life in those planes. Yeah, no, I would agree. It's just that there's a obviously a trickle-down effect that, that's that's much bigger than those Triple seven said Delta, just macro thing. As, as what anything going on right now, right? It, it's just just huge macro issues in the world, which then become issues for the industry, and then filter down into the more granular questions. Well, Seth, uh, Seth, why don't you yep. call it Bastion and say, I'll, I'll buy a triple seven for ten million, and see if he says <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> see if he calls my bluff and says, and says yes, and then I gotta go. Uh, <laughs> Find somebody else's money to buy triple seven with. Well, on final approach now for what I think has to be a record-setting long uh, episode of of this show, but just yeah, all kinds of stuff to talk about. That does it for airlines confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And hoping to see you in Cincinnati, I'm Ben Bubbang. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.